0: Well, if you're just joining us today new or if you've been with us for a while, we're in the middle of a sermon series and we began just this last Lord's Day last week talking about the church. And we talked last week about about the church, the universal church of all time, God's elect. And this body, we said, is a is a spiritual body. We don't know who exactly our Christians are, right? We take people on their profession of faith and the fruit of their life. Only God knows exactly who are his and who are not. So that church, the church of all Christians, sometimes is called the invisible church because no one knows exactly who they are. But at the same time, it's a visible body because true believers act like Christians and outwardly profess faith and worship together in churches. Today we're getting more specific and we're going to speak about um, a church, a local church. So if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy 3. And we're going to begin here in this first letter that Paul wrote to his young protege, a young pastor of the church in Ephesus. And praise God that we have a, a sure word right? that we can trust and look to and find assurance in that God has spoken to us. He has revealed himself in his word, what we are to believe, how we are to live. We have that here. So 1st Timothy chapter 3 in verse 14 is where we'll begin. Verse 14 1 Timothy. Towards the end of your Bible um, in the letters of, of Paul 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 and this is the Inspired word of the living God. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you now as we as we open up the scriptures and we begin uh, the preaching of your word. And we ask your blessing again on this time. Lord, this this gathering, this assembly, this message, the music, all that we've done without the presence of your spirit and the power of our God is for naught. So we pray that you might make these things effectual. We pray that you might be pleased to minister to your church through this message. I pray that you'd keep me from nonsense, from folly, from error. Um, pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that you would work. Help us with our distractions uh, that we're all um, succumb to—the weakness of our flesh, our bodies being grumpy about sitting in a ch- seat for a while. God, we pray that you'd help us in this time to have a holy. Sort of focused, spirit empowered focus. Pray that you would help this to be practical for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you read the New Testament, I'm sure you have picked up, as you've read, that the New Testament is a church book. As you read from Matthew to Revelation, the church is everywhere. Jesus comes and he founds the church. He calls men into the church. He says, that he is the one that builds his church. He lives and dies for the church. He pours his spirit out upon the church. We see in the book of Acts and into the epistles that sinners are saved and baptized and brought into local churches. It's just sort of an assumption that's everywhere in the New Testament. It is within the context of a local church that Baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered is within the context of the local church where the word of God is to be preached and where visible saints, professors, disciples of Jesus gather to serve Christ, to use their gifting and to serve one another. The local church we see in the New Testament is really the hub of discipleship. God's program of discipleship begins in the local church. It is where gifted and qualified men are called to lead and to shepherd. It is where the body is to come as well and to use their gifting to serve one another. The local church is the mechanism, the vehicle that God has ordained for the advancement of missions and for the ministry of mercy. We see the majority of the letters in the New Testament are written to churches and the ones that are not specifically Two churches talk about life pertaining to the local church body. The New Testament really knows nothing of a Christian living and walking outside of the context of a local Christian church. But what is it that makes a church? Or maybe I could ask it in the negative. Can there be such thing as a false church? And if you would say yes to that, then how in the world do we know the difference? What are the distinctions? What are the things that would make something a church and make something not a church? Is any group of Christians that gather together, should we call that a church? You know, a, a group of college students that meet in a dorm every Wednesday and open up the Bible together. Should we consider that as a church? a group of believers that gather weekly for fellowship and have a meal together and and praise God and speak of spiritual things, ought we to consider that on its own a church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The question that we're going to ask today is, what are the marks of a true church? What are the marks of a true church? Uh, what irreducible traits must be there for a church, a true church, to exist and This has been asked and answered in many different ways throughout the history of the church. Since the Reformation, since about the 1500s, there are three marks that have sort of stuck with us, how we defined what a local church is. What are the three things that must be there for a church to be a church? There's more that could be said, and I think more that is healthily there, but we're sort of looking at the minimum. Before we do that, I want to do one thing. Look back with me in first Timothy three. I want to point something out that needs to be understood as we talk about this. Paul says there i I hope to come to you first Timothy three fourteen. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So this is an instruction letter to a young pastor exhorting him how people ought to behave in God's house and how God's house ought to be structured and ordered. He just spent the the rest of chapter 3 previously giving the qualifications for pastors, overseers, elders. These are all the same thing. And deacons, the two offices in the church. He's instructing this young pastor what these men ought to have as far as qualifications. And then he says something else. He goes on, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That word there, church, in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It means the assembly or to assemble. There's a, a, a word that has the same basic meaning in the Old Testament is the word kahal. So kahal and ekklesia basically means a gathering. There's a few times in the New Testament where this word speaks of a secular gathering. There's a few times where this word speaks of a violent mob Gathering, one time at least, um, in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he uses the word ecclesia speaking of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. He calls them a church or an assembly. Every time this word is used, it, it speaks of a group of people gathering for a specific purpose. And 95 plus percent of the time, those people are gathered for worship. So, what I'm getting at here is that when we think of a local church, we're thinking of a visible body of believers gathering together. So that means that us assembling, because the word ecclesia is used, our assembling together is not just a function of the church, but it's actually part of our identity. It's who we are. The church gathers. And thus, if the church is not gathering, we're not really being the church in the proper way that the bible explains. This is a question that we've had to wrestle with with the whole covid situation, right? And different churches have come down in different positions. Some would say doesn't really matter. We have we have facebook, we have t- televisions, and as long as we're in our homes and we're watching the pastor preach a sermon, that's enough. We're worshipping. Um, and others have come down on the other side and say no, embodied worship is what the new testament is speaking of. And if we're not gathering together, then we're not being a church as the Bible defines the term. So that that understanding needs to undergird all of these marks that a church is a body of disciples that come together for the purpose of worship. They meet in a specific place at a specific time. The building doesn't matter. The name doesn't matter. They can meet in a hut, in a home, in a cathedral, in a place like this, none of that stuff matters, but they're identifiable. It is the church in Galatia, the church in Corinth, the church at Rome. It is a distinct body of believers as opposed to just generically the church. I wanted to set that sort of foundation before we begin. So what are the marks of a church? What are the irreducible traits that must be there for a body of believers to be considered a church, As I said, we have three. These are not new to me. They're historic. They've sort of stuck around and are time-tested. The first and most important, Mark, is the right preaching of the Word of God. The right preaching of the Word of God. If there be a true church, God's Word will surely be preached there. If you look back in 1 Timothy uh, verse 15, he said that, How you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I picture the huge pillars or columns holding up large buildings, the White House or something to that effect. And the church is the pillars that support the truth, that support the scriptures, this body of faith that God has. Given us. The church then is the God ordained institution that preserves the truth and propagates the truth. If you turn your Bible and we're going to jump around as we have been in this series. If you turn to Acts, chapter two, Acts, chapter two. In verse forty two of of Acts, two. We have, and we'll look at this a bit more in a minute, but we have a bunch of people that have gotten saved. They've come into the church. It's the initial outpouring of the Spirit and the initial work of God just bringing in a mass of people into this this foundational little element here of the church. They repent, they're baptized, they're added, to the number, and it says that day about 3,000 souls, this great engrafting of, of, of Jews brought into the church. And what does it say in verse 42? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, the fellowship, and to the prayers. From the beginning, we see that God's word has been central in the church. It has always been this way. So when we speak of the right preaching of the word, I want to press in on this a little bit. We're talking about more than someone giving a sermon. Just because someone gives a talk from the Bible doesn't make something a church. Back in Rogue River when I was out there, we had a men's breakfast every month, and we would gather with all the churches were invited And we'd have a big meal together. We'd sing and someone would preach for five or ten minutes. It was a blessed time. It was an edifying time, but it was not a church. We were not trying to be a church just because someone was preaching. But I think with this mark, the right preaching of the word, comes a couple presuppositions, assumptions that need to be there. And the first one is this, that it is God's word that gives life creates the church and grows the church. God's word gives life, creates the church and grows the church. We have, of course, seen this from the beginning of the Bible, that God spoke. And it came to pass. God created with his verbal speech. There was no world. There was no stars. There was no moon. There was no life. And God spoke and life was there and God spoke and he hung the stars in the sky. We see then God calls Abram to be a people, right? Come to the place that I have yet to tell you, and I will make you a great nation. We, we've see, we see that God spoke to his people from a mountaintop with great thunders and lightning. He spoke to his people on tablets of stone on how they ought to live and, and worship him rightly. We see a wonderful story that I don't have time to read, but in Exodus chapter 37, if you haven't been there for a while, I encourage you to go take that chapter up this afternoon. Exodus 37, God's people are in rebellion, as they often were, as, as we often are, it seems. And God takes his prophet and he takes him to a valley full of dry bones. And you can imagine what the the desert in Israel would do to to bones, and they're bleached, and they're dead. There's no life in skeletons. And he asks the prophet the question, can these bones live? He says, you you know, Lord, I I don't know. They're bones, right? How in the world can can they live? And he tells the prophet, prophesy, speak my words over these bones. And the bones begin to rattle and come together and Sinews and veins and tissue begins to grow on the bones and skin is wrapped on these bodies and they stand up. A mighty army of God's people. The word of God animates dead bodies. And as we walk on the streets today, as you turn on the television, you might ask that same question. Can these bones live, Lord? The word of God brings life. It animates dead souls. That trend continues on in the New Testament. It is in the New Testament that the eternal word of God comes on to the scene. Jesus Christ, the word. And what does he come to do? He comes to preach. He is full of grace and truth. And he comes to preach a message of good news. He told his hearers in John 6 that it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you our spirit and life, our spirit and life. It was through his preaching that Jesus birthed the church, called the church, redeemed the church. That ministry did not end with him. That ministry was passed on, not just to the apostles, but to us, right? To the church, Matthew 28, you know, the great commission there. Jesus came and said to them, all authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, you see. With this great commission is sandwiched the proclamation of God's word. Disciples are made. They're evangelized with the proclamation of the word of God. They are then baptized and they are then then discipled and matured. How? With the word teaching them all. He says that I have commanded to you. Romans 10, Paul would say that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Christ. So the word rightly preached has this presupposition that this word will bring life to dead souls, that this word is what the church needs to grow and multiply, whether that's spiritually, inwardly or numerically. But there's another assumption here with the right preaching of the word, and that is that this word, God's word, is our final authority for faith and practice that the scripture stands supreme as a governor if you will over the church of the lord jesus christ um, turn to second timothy if you if you want to second timothy now chapter 3 this is a a scripture that i'm sure a number here have memorized a scripture that is dear, that we often turn to as Bible-believing Christians. 2 Timothy 3.16. Excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul there says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work if you have a i'm using the ESV here if you have a different translation it may say given by inspiration now inspiration is sort of the technical theological term for this concept but if we just translate the words literally it says God breathed or breathed out by God. The word is inspired. Then the word is God breathed. That means that these words are God's words. Amen. These words are God's words. And notice God has given us a sufficient word. He says that the man of God can be complete for every good work. That means that we have all that we need in this book for what we should believe and how we ought to live. Now, the Scripture will not teach you how to change a carburetor, a 1969 Volkswagen, but the Scripture will teach you how to be a godly mechanic and to, and to function in your vocation to the glory of God and to please Him in that role. So God has given us a sufficient word, but we're talking here about authority. If this truly is God breathed, then it must stand above every other writing in the world. You see pictures sometimes I've never been to one of these libraries with stories of books and just endless, endless books, sort of heaven for a book nerd. And you might have a library with twenty five million books and there's one little Bible snuck in one slot. And this one little book stands supreme over all of the voluminous writings of men because it is the very words of God. So the word rightly preached presupposes that this is our authority. We're governed by Scripture. Scripture teaches us how the church should be ordered, how God wants to be worshipped, what the gospel is, how, what his character is, all of these things, and how we can live and please him are found in God's word. So the church that rightly preaches the word desires to be governed by that word. Let me ask you, just as we're reflecting on this, do you see how vital the word of God is for the life of a church? how central that it must be to everything that we do. Do you see how vital it then is for the life of a believer? Not just the church at large, but for your own soul, your practice of piety before God, how necessary the word is. I ask you today, are you trusting God's word to bear fruit in your life? Are you trusting that as you open up the scriptures that God will use his word to grow you and to mature you, to deepen your faith, to fill you with hope in trials and confidence in storms? Is that trust that you have manifesting itself in a daily intake of the word of God? Are you gleaning from the word? Or how about this? Not only for yourself, but are you trusting the word of God to bring fruit in the life of your loved ones, those around you? Maybe you still have children in the home and you're seeking to teach them the word. And, and there is times where you read the scripture and you ask God, is this is, is anything happening here? Is any fruit coming? They're bouncing off the walls. No one's listening. Is there any point in all of this? Or maybe your kids are long gone. But the question for you is, are you trusting the word that was implanted? Because praise God, he doesn't always bring the word effectually in the life of a person in that moment. Sometimes it takes 25 years for that fruit to come up. And he'll use those seeds that were planted long ago, even when in the moment they were undesirous. But God is good about bringing fruit from what seems to be very rocky soil at times. Are we trusting the word of God to build up this church, to grow this church in depth, in faith, in conviction, and to grow this church numerically as God pleases, to save those who need to be saved and to sanctify those who need to be sanctified? That's all of us, right? God's Word is the first and most vital mark of a true church. The church needs more than this, but cannot have less. And I spent the most significant time there. Secondly, number two, the second mark of a true church is that the ordinances of Christ are rightly administered. By ordinances, we mean baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we use the word Sacrament, we sort of interchange those words. An ordinance means simply that they were ordained by Christ. A sacrament means that they are means of grace. They are means that God uses to strengthen the faith of His people. It all begins with the Word. And those signs, these sacraments, ordinances, are never divorced from the Word. They come alongside the Word, but they are distinct. They're signs that signify spiritual realities. They're signs that signify things that the Bible teaches, baptism and communion. And these two things are uniquely given to the Christian church by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not meant to take place independent from the church. If you could imagine, um, let me hold off on that. Let me actually read you this quote here. This is Wayne Grudem. Um, he speaks of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he says they act as membership controls for the church. Baptism is the means of entering the church. It's the door, if you will. And the Lord's table is a continued sign of membership within the body of Christ. As we partake of the sign of the covenant, we are testifying in one sense our continued allegiance to and covenant with the Lord Jesus. These two things mark off Christians from the rest of the world, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Turn again, if you would now, to Acts chapter 2. And I I said we'd look at this again in a bit more detail. Again, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has been poured out. Peter is, is preaching like he never has before. God is God is blessing his preaching. The Holy Spirit is owning, if you will, the message of the Apostle Peter. And you have many, many people there that are they come under conviction of the Holy Spirit. They recognize that they've denied his Christ, his Messiah, that they've not walked in his ways. And it says they're cut to the heart. In verse 37 of Acts 2. To himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, what were they added to? They were added to the church. They were added that day to the church. Now, notice the progression. What should we do? What is our response yes repent that's right repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit baptism was that very first step of obedience for the believer turn from your sin believe upon christ that's all summarized in that one word repent and be baptized Follow Christ in obedience into the waters of baptism. Baptism is basically going public for Jesus, identifying with him publicly. And he then places that sign of water baptism on you. So the charge there was repent and be baptized. And there may very well be someone here today that has that same question in their heart. What am I to do? I know that I'm a sinner. I know that God is a savior. But I don't know that I am truly in Christ. I may be in church today. I may have done a lot of church things. But maybe the Holy Spirit has convicted you in these days that you've yet to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the charge given by Peter is the same charge for all in every era. Repent that we would turn from our sin, turn really from trusting in self or any other thing and to trust in the one true God. Now, for someone here, that may be first time, the initial act of faith for you today. And if you would do that today, you can and would be saved. But for all of us, that call is daily, right? To die to ourself, to die to trusting in anything other than Christ, to repent of it all and to believe afresh in Jesus. So we see the first thing that they do when they believe they're baptized and they're added to the church. Baptism is that entrance into the church. Secondly, then the Lord's Supper. And if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 24 verse 24 And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, who is Jesus? Is Paul quoting him. But who is Jesus speaking to in that moment? Speaking to his apostles. He's speaking to Christians, right? He's speaking to believers. This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is it that they're remembering? What is it that we remember when we partake of the sacrament? We remember his death, right? His burial, his resurrection. We remember his body, his blood shed for us. We remember that he died for the church, for his bride, for his people. So this sign here, this covenant meal is given to Christians, to believers who Jesus gave his body for and it is to then be received in faith. So as you partake of the elements, as you drink and eat you are doing so in faith that these signs represent what's already taken place in you. They represent the covenant standing that you have with God. So you might ask, that's all great, but how does they signify a true church? What do these have to do with a church being a church or not? Baptism and communion mark off the church from the world. They separate believer from unbeliever. In the ordinances, and I'm, I'm going to get into this down the road, so I don't want to go too far But in these ordinances, the church is given a measure of authority where the church has the the keys, if you will. To grant someone entrance into the church through the waters of baptism, based on them professing faith in Christ and living in such a way that aligns with that profession or the church has the authority to say no. You you are living in unrepentant sin. You are living in willful disobedience to Christ. There's something wrong here. The church has that same authority with the Lord's table. It is offered to repentant sinners, and it is kept from those that are outside of Christ, or at least living in such a way that is questionable. Going back to what we said in the beginning, then, that means that a gathering of saints, a Bible study. These things are great and edifying and helpful. But when the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are not being rightly administered, then we don't have a true church because these are the signs that Christ has given to mark off the church from the world, believer from unbeliever. And church, do you see, as we think about this, do you see the amazing privilege that it is to be a member of Christ's bride. To be a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just some social club where we come as like-minded people. You know, we have, we have similar political values or something of that nature. But when we assemble on the Lord's Day, we do so as sons and daughters of the King. We do so as the redeemed of the Lord to say so, right, to testify of that redemption that we have in Christ. These ordinances, the supper and water baptism, are not just rituals. They're not just traditions that we do because we've always done them. So we just go through the motions, but they are signs given by Christ of a inward spiritual reality and they mark off you, believer, as a member of the covenant community of the people of God, separate from the rest of the world, as the church is a called-out assembly, called out of the world. So thirdly and lastly, the last mark is the compassionate exercise of church discipline. Now, as soon as you start talking about church discipline um, usually people get uncomfortable, and we start to think of some experience you might have had with Jehovah's Witnesses shunning their family and, and d- seeing families divided. Church discipline often is done poorly because you have sinners trying to reconcile sinners, and it's often messy, and if you have experienced it, you may have seen a terrible example because we are sinners. Now listen to what Mark Dever says. He says that discipline draws a circle around the membership of the church. Careful practices of membership and discipline mark off the church from the world and thereby define the gospel, define and display the gospel. The church is a group of people that have been saved by the redeeming work of Jesus, right? And so in our fellowship, as we come together, the gospel of Jesus Christ is on display, right? It is being seen and evident. The fruits of that work is seen, as Jesus says, I'll know you. How you love one another, right? How that takes place within the body. Discipline in the church makes sure that the world is not the church and the church is not the world. It draws a line. It guards the Lord's table from people taking it that are unbelievers. It guards the purity of the church. It guards the doctrine and teaching of the church. And as some would say, this is just seems seems mean, right? That we would call people on their sin. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that instituted uh, church discipline. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. And I won't spend a ton of time here as I would like. Uh, Maybe down the road we'll touch on this again. But this is Jesus' institution of how we ought to deal with sin in the church. He is the one that gave us this formula and this instruction. So, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So if someone sins in the church, sins against you, you see someone living in some sinful lifestyle that's harmful to them, to their family, Jesus says, go to them. Speak to them, exhort them, encourage them. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Praise God, it's it's over. right? It's been been dealt with. They, They acknowledge it, they repent, and... You move on. He says, if they don't listen, take one or two brothers with you. Take other faithful Christians that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this up to this point is happening all the time in the church, right? Christian admonishing Christian. And if and when that doesn't really work and they're not really hearing it, we tell another brother and say, Do you talk to this guy with me? It just seems he's not hearing me. Do you see what's going on in his life? Or maybe they've offended someone and they don't they fail to see it. They they deny it. This happens all the time and stops usually at this point because Lord willing, it gets dealt with positively. But he says, if he refuses to listen to them in verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what is he saying? there? That sounds sometimes harsh or, or, or mean. You know, we're we, we all sinners, so who are we to call someone out on their sin and even to potentially put them out if need be? Well, there's two real points here. Firstly, church discipline weeds out false believers. Right? When Jesus says, treat them like a tax collector in a, in a Gentile, we often think, well, he, they hated them, so we're supposed to hate these people. No, what he's saying is treat them like an unbeliever. They need the gospel. They need to be called to repent. They need to hear that their sin will send them to, uh, to hell, really. So the first thing church discipline does is it weeds out those that are not truly believers. And I think one of the most unloving things that we can do is affirm someone that has false faith that they're a Christian and just sort of pat them on the back and affirm them in their deception. That's not loving at all. Secondly, the main purpose of church discipline is to bring true believers to repentance and right fellowship with God. The aim here is restoration, right? Restoration, to help someone. One one commentator said, church discipline doesn't mean kicking people out when they fail. It means loving people enough to walk with them through their valleys, loving them enough to walk with them through their valleys. And let me just throw out a question to you, to all of us. Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to say hard things to them when they've sinned? Do we love them enough to press through what is awkward and difficult? I I would even say, firstly, are are we loving enough enough to where we're entering into a relationship where this is this can be fostered, right, where we're allowing one another to be hurt. And when we are hurt, that we can say, listen, I love you. But man, I'm struggling with the way you're acting here, what you've done here, how you treat her or him. The loving thing to do is to, yes, get the log out of our own eye. But he doesn't say stop there. He says, then, Go to them, right? Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, admonish those. Encourage those who are caught in any transgression. The whole aim is restoration and love, to see someone come out of a, a, a lifestyle they're living, an unrepentant sin, whatever it is. So again, why is this important for a church to be a church? This seems like sort of a fringe thing, church discipline, I'm sure many of us here have never seen it done, and some that have have probably seen it done poorly. So why in the world would this be a mark of a, of a true church? Well, you probably know the story of, of Constantine back in the Roman Empire. and Christianity, he had a dream. He saw the cross on a shield, and Christianity overnight became the state religion. It, became, it was legalized, basically. So there was some benefit here. The church is no longer persecuted. I'm sure many believers were thankful for that. But overnight, the world comes into the church. And it becomes socially beneficial to be a Christian. It'll help you in the market score. It'll help you with your business. And what do we have? Well, we have a church that is the world that is completely undistinct from the rest of the world. The church lost its salt and lost its light. and was no longer a distinct people. Church discipline then helps the church to keep its salt and its light helps the church to keep its gospel witness to the world and for the glory of God so that when people are living in a way that denies the gospel that is in abhorrence to Christ they either receive the charge to repent or there's there, there's there's counseling and there's there's dealing with their actions and I'm sure there's been times in your life where you're going down a path that was not good, where you were doing things that were not helpful. And someone, a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, someone came alongside and loved you enough to say, listen, you're going to hurt yourself. You're, 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 you're harming those that you love. You're, you're living in a way that tarnishes your witness for the kingdom of Christ. Now, did they, did they do that out of hate? Or do they do that out of love to see you restored? This can often be done poorly. But when there is no mechanism in place to guard the purity of the church, then the church loses its distinction. And we may as well just be another social gathering of people. So what have we seen? We've seen today that a true church is one that rightly preaches the word. The word governs the church and it is the source of life and growth for the church. We've seen, secondly, that a true church rightly administers the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper mark off Christian from unchristian, believer from unbeliever. And thirdly, a true church compassionately exercises church discipline. It is the instrument that Jesus has ordained that the church retain its salt and light and that wayward Christians be brought back into right fellowship with God lastly you may be saying hearing all this and saying so what I'm in a church what is what does this really matter why why study this why consider these things I just I want to say to you and I hope that we all can see and grow in our appreciation for the preciousness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that the church is the very bride of Jesus ordained by Christ And this is the institution, the the organism, if you will, that Christ has ordained, that he will work through and minister through. The church at times certainly seems small in the eyes of the world. We can feel as if the church is insignificant, is, is not doing much. But Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May God bless the church. Let me pray.